0: Hello, and welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, we are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Blaze Bryant, flying solo. We begin by hearing from Columbia County's Sanctuary Movement about their excluded No More legislation. Then, Maria Barthel brings us in or some information on a young adult reentry program to learn occupational skills. Later on, we remember our producer, Megan Marone, with another compilation of recordings from our community. Then, our roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry, brings us a recording from the Hudson Valley Community College president, addressing some scandals that they are dealing with. And finally, my conversation with retired meteorologist Hugh Johnson. Here's what we have in our headlines. A federal judge has granted class action status for Hoosick Falls against DuPont company over the pollution public and private water supplies in and around the Rensselaer County village. DuPont declined to be part of an earlier $65 million settlement involving three other companies. The four companies are alleged to have had varying roles in the decades-long pollution of the community's water supplies. The water is contaminated with chemicals used at various factories in the village. The Albany Municipal Internet Commission is recommending the city pursue broadband to increase internet access for residents. The report highlighted a study of broadband internet service in Chattanooga, Tennessee. The study showed a $200 million investment resulted in $2.7 billion on return. Roughly 10,000 jobs were created. The Albany County Public Defender is in court challenging the Colony Justice Court Clerk. The Public Defender is alleging Mary Fallis Mayor's Office stonewalled requests for public information from court cases under a new state law. The county attorney says the clerk is demanding more details in requests than what is required by the law. City police said they shut down two large parties in a former bank building at 54th Street in downtown Troy. Hundreds of people were at the parties last weekend. Riverkeeper has received $150,000 from the state to take down the Mill Creek Dam in Rensselaer. New York is looking to tear down a 1,000 old dams in the Hudson Valley, which are not being used. The group wants to help restore depleted stocks of American eel and river herring, which travel from the Atlantic Ocean to streams along the Hudson River. Finally, with the winter season rapidly approaching, the State Department of Transportation is looking to fill more than 100 job openings in the Capital District. The Gazette reports highway agencies across the country have fallen short of optimal snowplow operators because of workforce levels since the labor market dipped at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. If you're just tuning in, this is Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Blaze Bryant. Hudson Mohawk Magazine is listener supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org. Send us an email, hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or give us a call, 518-272-2390. Our first segment, about unemployment. Compensation doesn't cover everyone, and the excluded no more legislation wants to make sure that more people have a safety net for hard times. Cena Bazilus Hickey spoke with Columbia County Sanctuary Movement to learn more.
1: Excluded No More wants to end unjust gaps in our safety net that leave workers behind. Joining us now to tell us what that actually means is Iridian Lucas-Garcia, Coalition and Member Engagement Coordinator at Columbia County Sanctuary Movement. Welcome.
2: Hi, happy to be here.
1: So how did the Fight for Excluded Workers Fund bring renewed attention to the system that fails to support many of New York's workers and the need for the Excluded No More bill?
2: The fact alone that we needed to fight to create an excluded worker fund showed us that our safety net specifically excluded large sectors of the workforce, particularly undocumented workers or certain self-employed workers like street vendors and therefore unjustly affecting black, brown, and immigrant workers um, immensely. And yes, the excluded worker fund was a huge win Um, But it was only a one-time payment, a brief sigh of relief for uh, many workers in the state. And those same workers are still excluded from some programs like unemployment insurance. This is why we need excluded no more. We need to permanently close the gaps in our social safety um, net and, um, you know, have protections um, like unemployment compensation for workers. So what is the
1: excluded no more fund, how will it work and can you expand on on the need for it?
2: So the excluded uh, no more would take the best practices of regular unemployment insurance and uh, the best lessons learned from the excluded worker fund and qualified workers would get a flat payment that matches the average state rate of unemployment insurance, which is currently at uh, $1,200 a month. So to be clear, we're not expanding unemployment insurance, but we are creating a separate program that would just run parallel to unemployment insurance. And the required documents that folks would need to submit would be similar to those documents that the Excluded Worker Fund had required and also um, you know, take some of, the, um, some of the other lessons that the uh, unemployment insurance also collects as well. So you mentioned
1: some of the people who might be applying for the fund, but the details can often be a little bit more intricate. So how does someone qualify and does it have anything to do with income tax payment?
2: The Excluded No More program is meant for workers who can't qualify for regular unemployment insurance, either due to their immigration status or the type of work that they do. So they must have earned under the states' medium individual earnings, which is at like $56,000, and worked at least 20 weeks in the 12 months uh, before they lost work. And because of the work requirements, these workers are already contributing in taxes, uh, whether they be using a Social Security number or an ITIN, which is an Individual Tax Identification Number, that uh, workers in the state, like undocumented workers, use to pay taxes.
1: What are what are some of the misconceptions that you hear about undocumented individuals and the uh, economy systems that we have?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, many undocumented um, individuals uh, have an ITIN. And with that ITIN, like you said, they are paying taxes. And their taxes are going into programs that they basically never benefit from, they would never get any sort of benefit essentially into, into paying into these systems because they're already paying into programs like unemployment insurance, but they can, they themselves cannot apply for that program, um, because they're undocumented. So, um, so they are currently, you know, uh, essentially being excluded from programs that they otherwise should have the right to, um, any worker, uh, you know, um, in the state has social security number um, and benefits from these programs, you are paying into them with when you're paying, you know, your taxes, but, um, and you're able to apply for them, but with workers um, that have an ITIN or are undocumented, you know, they are paying into these systems, but they really don't reap any benefits. So, um, so lots of these workers are, you know, otherwise uh, they're basically, you know, supporting a system that just doesn't benefit them and, um, you know, essentially doesn't, you know, care about them because they are being left out when, um, you know, when they faced an an unemployment, you know, crisis or they're out of work or anything like that. They um, basically are left to fend for themselves because they have no program to rely on, no support. Um, so, uh, So, yeah, we need to make sure that, there's a program for them, for them to be included since they're already paying into these programs that support, you know, essentially the state's uh, workforce.
1: The Excluded No More Fund would cost $800 million in its first year. Why is this a smart investment into New York's economy? The
2: Excluded Worker Fund um, showed us that the payments uh, that individuals receive received from it uh you know they used it and contributed directly to their local economies from all over the state in a time when you know when folks were recovering from the pandemic and the simple fact is that working class families spend income in order to survive they're going to their local grocery stores and you know they have to buy their their groceries to feed themselves they're paying uh, for rent, um, and they're, they're, you know, they're contributing to their local community, to their local economy. And in the same way that regular unemployment insurance keeps money flowing into the economy, Excluded No More would be the same in that, you know, folks who receive payments from Excluded No More would use that money to, you know, um, that would then allow them to survive um, in their communities and you know, that money that they'll be getting will presumably, you know, go back into their local economies. And so, um, and so in that way, it's, it'll be similar to folks who receive regular unemployment insurance.
1: And about a month ago, we spoke with somebody who had gotten the um, excluded workers fund and was talking about the way that they utilize those funds. So listeners can check back on that. So um, what stage are things at right now with establishing the Excluded No
2: More program? Sure. So the bill has already been introduced. Um, Its numbers are A-9037 and S-8165. And uh, it had been introduced, but we're actually also really excited to finalize some amendments that we we hope um, and we know will strengthen the bill and um, hopefully expand the universe of workers so it had been introduced last session but this session it will have to be reintroduced so there will be some minor changes made including the the numbers of the bill Um, but you know with that will also come those new amendments um, where we hope that more workers in the state will be able to um, to you know uh, rely on this program um, and Um, And those workers will be able to benefit from a program like this. So we're excited um, for the bill to actually be finalized in in a couple months with the new bill numbers and all of that. And, and, you know, again, with that, uh, an expanded universe of workers who will be covered under this bill as well.
1: What are some of the challenges that you're facing in establishing this program?
2: Um, There are a few uh, challenges I think we're we're, um, we're facing. Um, Number one is that I think in our coalition is a statewide coalition and a lot of elected officials. um, I think there's a a big concentration of elected officials that are, for the most part, very supportive um, over in the city area. And I think in our area here in the upstate capital region, it has been a bit hard um, to engage some elected officials. Um, in supporting excluded no more. Um, but we do think that, you know, with the expanded universe of workers, hopefully these elected officials, th- you know, start to um, really stay engaged because a lot of, you know, their constituents could benefit from this program. And so, um, and so you know, we really hope we're able to overcome that, that challenge. And um, uh, we really hope, um, ex- elected officials and communities across the state of New York, um, you know, uh, start to uh, engage with our coalition and our campaign and uh, workers, uh, you know, all together in the state. I think it's really important that we uh, start to recognize the value um, of the labor that excluded workers in the state um, provide the state and provide to our communities. And so um, hopefully we get lots of support from um, communities and elected officials statewide for Excluded No More, um, since we believe it would be a really um, important and essential program to keep excluded workers um, included in our state's social safety net.
1: Thank you so much, Iridi and Lucas Garcia, for joining us on Hudson Mohawk Magazine.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Iridan Lucas Garcia of Columbia County Sanctuary Movement talking with Cena Bazila Hickey. For updates on this campaign and amendments, go to www.fundexcludedworkers.org or follow at Fund Excluded Workers Coalition on social media. Next, Bria Barthel brings us a story on a young adult reentry program. It's for 18 to 24-year-olds who have had previous involvement with the criminal justice system, learn occupational skills through Hudson Valley Community College's Office of Workforce Development.
3: Hi, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And today I'm joined by Matt Richardson, the regional administrator of a somewhat new program in Troy by Pathstone, Corporation called Young Adult Reentry Program. Hey, Matt, what's all this about?
4: Hi, good morning, Bree. Thanks for having me here today. I appreciate the opportunity to come here and talk about the Pathstone Corporation and specifically this Young Adult Reentry Program. Pathstone's a non-for-profit agency. It was founded back in 1969 in Rochester, New York, originally to serve um, migrant and farming workers. And over the subsequent 50-plus years, the agency has grown to operate programs now in seven states as well as in Puerto Rico. The agency's primary focus is employment and housing-based programs. This particular program I'm here to talk about today, the Young Adult Reentry Program. It is a new federally, federally funded program through the U.S. Department of Agriculture and Training, and the target population is 18 to 24-year-old individuals. Migrant status um, is, is has no effect on this particular program. These folks had to have had past or present involvement with the the criminal justice system. That can be anything from being on probation or parole to getting you know out of prison today, tomorrow or very soon, having had in any sort of involvement when they were a youth, maybe a youthful offender thing, a pins uh, pins petition, um, even if an individual is a high school dropout at some point in their life they are eligible to enroll in this program.
3: Tell us a little bit about what people in the program do and what they come out of it with.
4: Great. Well, people in this program, they are afforded the opportunity to enroll in Hudson Valley Community College through the Community College's Workforce Development Program. The Workforce Development Program offers what I like to refer to as your non-traditional college courses. These are anywhere from one day to several weeks in terms of length of trainings. And they're in primarily in your trade jobs. They have programs such as welding, electrical, plumbing basics, manufacturing, construction. They also offer online courses. We have a young man right now who's taking some cybersecurity courses. Another young adult is taking business management Courses. They've recently added a real estate licensing course and a security guard course.
3: And the participants can pick what path they want to take. Right? They're not told like, okay, we need two more electricians. We need somebody in plumbing.
4: No, they are not told what to take. They have full autonomy over the choices they make. We do have two case managers on staff, so the participant would work with the case manager to identify a career path, um, goals and what they would ultimately want to do. We want the individuals to make the decisions based on what's best for them.
3: And you mentioned having career counselors that get other support services in addition to the courses?
4: Yes, that is correct. Those additional supports include, as I mentioned, uh, two full-time case managers who will work with the participant from the time they walk through our door throughout the course of their enrolling in the college Going through their program, completion of the program, we will also offer supports in terms of helping them look for work, complete resumes. We can conduct mock interviews. Um, we do a cognitive behavioral intervention piece, which is a series of videos that an individual, <clears throat> pardon me, an individual takes a look at their thinking. I like to describe it as helping an individual to realize things they say they can't do, they realize that they, in fact, can do. Um, So we also have, in terms of additional supports, there are supportive service dollars, if you will, resources that can help individuals obtain anything from bus passes to items needed for a job, for instance, work boots, tool belts, um, maybe notebooks, pens and pencils, maybe a laptop
3: and how much does this cost for somebody to participate?
4: Nothing, it is free of charge. There is the beauty of it. The only requirements that we have are an individual's time and their commitment to first and foremost to themselves because this is about an individual bettering or making changes or working to make those changes to provide a better opportunity for themselves which in turn helps others and um, the commitment to want to do this.
3: So the tuition is free, uh, all the materials are free, the counseling street, everything's free?
4: Everything is free.
3: That sounds great. So I see that there are specific cities you work with. So where are most of your participants, where are you trying to draw from?
4: Okay, so the cities that the federal grant identified based on levels of... Poverty and high crime area and need were the cities of Albany, Troy, Menands, Waterville, and Rensselaer. However, the grant does allow us to serve a certain percentage of individuals who may not meet all of the three eligibility criteria, for instance, an individual can realistically live anywhere in New York and be eligible for this program the um, actuality of somebody perhaps living in say Amsterdam and commuting to Troy is maybe unlikely but if such an individual is able to work all those things out and live in Amsterdam they could still be a part of this program
3: and i think you said something about providing bus passes so that if people were coming in from other places they'd be they'd be able to access Uh, hudson valley by mass transit
4: yes hudson valley is accessible by mass transit the agency does have funding allotted for bus passes um we also have an agency vehicle 2022 ford ford edge which is kind of cool or ford escape so it's nice to have a new vehicle around that we you know and we have the staff to um assist with transportation when 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 needed so there are avenues in terms of transportation oh and lastly um if an individual individual is enrolled in hudson valley with a student id that is the same as having a bus pass and they can utilize the cdta transportation system with their student id
3: you said before we started that the, the program moved into the troy area in february have you had any participants yet
4: yes we have had several participants as we are growing the early stages have been primarily In reaching out to other community agencies and just you know quote unquote getting the word out there, letting folks you know know we're here and this resource is here. We do have some current participants actively enrolled. We go into the um, the local jails, both in Albany County and Rensselaer County, and interview uh, young folks while they're there. And then we you know we do our best to follow up with, with them, track their movements or whatnot why they're incarcerated and then you know try and get a hold of them as soon as they're out of the jail um we do have a few individuals have completed one young lady we actually met in albany county jail and within 48 hours of her release she contacted us she took a three-week welding course summer welding course um did wonderful in it completed it and currently works as a welder so she is the um what the program the the idea in mind was from start to finish.
3: That must have been fun to have your first graduate then go out and get a job.
4: So gratifying. I mean that's really what that's why we do this. The old adage if you've helped one person, you've done your job. So we understand life is hard. And for, you know, youngsters that have already, you know, maybe quote unquote feel like they have that strike against them, it's not anything that defines them and it's not anything that is Going to set the course for the rest of their lives here. This is this is a great opportunity. Um, a few other tidbits is you know individuals they don't need a GED to be eligible for this program. Um, a lot of it is your you know your basic reading and and math and your you know, maybe basic computer skills.
3: Do you have tutoring available for people that maybe have been out of the system for a while or don't have the GED, don't have the background? Do you help them? prepare for going into the trade courses
4: absolutely we can help individuals navigate all those other obstacles that may come up we have um, partnerships with other agencies where individuals can pursue their GED we have been working to gather and collect resources for folks so pretty much if anybody comes in if we in fact do not have the resources under our roof if you will to assist them with whatever the issue may be, we certainly are capable of pointing them in a direction where they can address the needs that they have at that moment.
3: And you mentioned three criteria?
4: 18 to 24-year-old young adults who have had past or present involvement in the justice system and reside in either Albany, Troy, Menanz, Water of Elite, or Rensselaer, and who are interested in enrolling and taking advantage of an opportunity to lay the foundation for an avenue to obtain and maintain gainful employment.
3: And you're located 84 Ferry Street in Troy. What's the best way for, for somebody who might be interested in, in learning more to get information or to sign up?
4: Well, there's several ways. Any individual can always stop by the office. We're theoretically there Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. The lights on, we're there. Other ways are you the online you can go to um, Pathstone, www.pathstone.org. And you can also contact me. My email is mrichardson at pathstone.org.
3: Thanks a lot. That was Matt Richardson. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks a lot, Matt.
4: Thank you.
0: For more information, go to our website, mediasanctuary.org. Everything you want and need to know about the program is linked in the description of this segment. Some news that we're following before the halftime plug here. The voting is happening. Well, votes are being counted Tuesday at the ALB1 Amazon warehouse facility in Skodak. If the votes are passed, it'll be the second Amazon warehouse to unionize. This is Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Blaze Bryant. You're listening to... Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network, which consists of these frequencies, WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany. Streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support the program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Listen to full shows and individual stories on most podcast platforms as well. Up next, we have our community tribute to Megan Marone as we grieve the loss of our friend and former producer. We compiled another tribute to Megan Marone from her family and friends who sent in recordings. If
5: anybody wants to come type with me, I've got a Royal 68, I can't have a car collection. Yeah. Uh, what else? Um, anyway, the point is that if you would like to come and type poems of me for the general public, please come down. Um, and I started it uh, for a few reasons, but one was to try to connect with people in a new and different way, you know, try to just talk to people in a different way. Um, so it's always it's like a lot of work to set up, but then and so sometimes I'm a baby the night before and I dread like, like oh my god to pack it all up. Um, but then when I get down there, um, it's also a good lesson in your brain because you make such snap judgments about people sometimes we all do, and then when you stop and hear people's stories you know, it's just pretty incredible to know where they're coming from, you know, and to, to really get at the complexity of, of uh, all of us and where we're all coming from. So, yeah, if you ever want to do it, I'm serious about that, too. You can uh, look at the Troy poem project, and I love doing it with friends. So, if you ever just want to come, what happens is you would have a typewriter, I have a typewriter, people walk up, and. Uh, we would say, usually it's the clacking of the keys that draws people in. That's like the cuttlefish lure. Uh, <laughs> the cuttlefish is the secret Never mind. It's, <laughs> it lures people in. And uh, then <laughs> uh, people will say, I'd like a poem on friendship, or love, or popcorn, or you know, yeah. bur- burgers or whatever, and then we have a timed writing assignment to type up that poem, Um, and it's fun to do that with people. So if you'd like to do it with me, I would love your company. Is it during the farmer's Um, market? It's uh, kind of at different times, and I think we could be really rebellious and just start doing it whenever we want. Is this a bring
6: typewriter for your guest? No, she's got one.
5: You got extra typewriters? I have an extra, yeah. Uh, There's uh, a dude in Linsenberg who is awesome, and he, for free, uh, does maintenance on these typewriters, which is, I don't know what what I'm going to do if I lose touch with this guy, Dave. He's pretty awesome.
2: That was Megan at an event called Spring Thaw talking about the Troy Poetry Project.
7: Hi, my name is Rebecca Friedman, and I wanted to share a poem that Megan wrote for me, for my husband for his birthday. I met her at the Troy Poetry Project and she laughed and said that I would be her first customer. And I asked her how much it would cost and she said, oh, it's free, just a donation. And she pointed to her little fishbowl. So I told her what I wanted, that my husband was a beekeeper um, and his hobby became a passion and was moving forward and she said, give me about 20 minutes and I think I can create something for you. She asked me to tell her a little bit about myself and my husband and just created some sort of, you know, vibe as to who he was and who we were so she can create this poem. And what drew me to her was she was sitting by the river with her manual typewriter and her little suitcase and a little tiny table And she was the most beautiful person just sitting there. It looked like something out of turn of the century. And I wanted to read this poem that she created. It is absolutely beautiful and her soul shines through. So thank you for letting me share it with you. She wrote, For David, there is a deep honorability in being the keeper of bees, protecting the process of pollination and therefore the natural order and therefore peace. There is a deep respectability in guarding the micro level love. Even when complete with stingers, a job seems replete. Five years, two be, 10 hives, it all takes care. And we pray that your sense of blissful compassion repeats. There is a bravery to you and your tending of the apiary, a calico sunset, propolis and honeycomb, reflects offerings of the tangible sea of time in which we swim, born and tended to by a, a God of small things. It touched my soul, I have it framed, and you will always be alive to everyone who knew you in whatever way you have touched them. Thank you, Megan, and thank you for letting me share this with you.
8: Next, we hear from
2: Christoph, a.k.a. Rags, who wrote a poem for Megan Marone.
9: I first met Meg Marone on a sidewalk writing poems, like this one, that I've written for her now. Vigil. Cherry blossoms gathered at branch tips gently sway in a courtyard at the high school. Some released to tumble and be carried off Or grace the grass where our feet gather the rest of us To say your name And not know where you are Where? Where are you? catkins jangling in catalpa trees Become silent bells striking spring On the hours that passed since first you went Your brother spoke A red-tailed hawk carted circles above the building We held space for you We still do The air beneath our wings unable to do more than be moved by your flight path in this moment. Tears welled beneath pink sunglasses and in other eyes dotting the bright chalk flowers with dew revealing softly the concrete canvas. Words towards you are everywhere, about you everywhere, everywhere are you, another beckon home or poem or intoned magic by your student speaking of the cold forest. Others mentioned metaphysics, curly hair, joie de vivre, poetics, nature, activism. You are invited, inciting, but not incite, celebrated, while we invoked Mary Oliver, invoked James Baldwin, Wild Geese and note to teacher, invoked Joanna Newsom, Joy Harjo, the Occident and the Eagle, invoked, and then Blue Bubbles, each an airborne message to you, while Ave Verum Corpus echoed by the choir and like typewritten taps sending a message from home. Wherever you are, we love you. We hope you are free.
8: My name is Melissa Bromley and I can't remember the first time I met Megan. What comes to mind when I think of her is buzzing of thinking and energy and a willingness to do all the dirty jobs. She was the first person to sweep the floors or do whatever was needed that maybe others didn't want to do. And so she set the tone for a lot of the volunteers at the sanctuary, especially because she was so present. She was an example to me for the capacity to give of oneself. And there's so many people who she impacted deeply. Megan definitely left her mark in the time she was here. And I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to learn from her life, and I think I'll continue to learn from it.
5: My name is Madeline. I met Megan while volunteering at the Sanctuary for Independent Media. When I think of Meg, I think of her intelligence, her bravery, her activism, warmth, creativity, and her beauty. One evening when I was at the Mount Ida Preservation Hall for an open mic event. Meg came in to do a performance and I clearly remember the feeling that her presence changed the room. She will be deeply missed.
2: Let's go back to Megan from the event
5: Springthaw. You may know this song, but it's called Oblivion by Grimes, who I think is now calling herself C. I never walk after dark It's my point of view Cause someone can break your neck Coming up behind you, always coming And you never have a clue I never walk behind all the time
0: To Elizabeth Press, or EP, for creating the tribute, this is the fourth collection of memories from the community about our friend Megan Marone. You can hear these tributes as well as the stories produced by Megan on our website, which is mediasanctuary.org. On October 4th, Roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry attended a special meeting of hudson valley community college president dr roger a ramsamy speaking to a college community about his work and vision for the school in light of controversy around his tenure in this part one which is a two-part segment you will hear words from dr ramsamy raw and uncut
10: that we know will live on on this campus forever. And that was creating a high school on our campus. Well, we created a high school, but we also need to think that four to five years down the road, we need to create the, what, the middle school that comes with it. So that's some, a project further down the road. So yes, this begins that pipeline. But I just told you also, we're working with 144 refugee leaders and with 185 faith-based leaders, and they're on their own through Ainsley. We can see a massive population of adult learners who, those who dropped out of high school. Through that program, we may be able to capture a whole lot of people, all refugee groups that are coming in. We're meeting with, with US Committee on, yeah, I keep forgetting the long thing, but we're meeting with Susan Malone, with a whole different bunch of different refugee groups. And here, we're trying to do what? Give them the opportunity to come to our campus, learn the English, and keep moving on into our credit-bearing programs. But that's a population nobody ever did what? touch. that's gonna be new. That's our initiative created by us. Then, you saw the expansion on North. We have to understand this. Adirondack Community College is just what? A little bit up the street. Now I'm not about putting people out of business, that's not what I'm trying to do. But unfortunately, there's a whole lot of students who are supposed to come to us, but find their site closer. So where do you think they're going? Right there. They're supposed to be our students. They're within our neighborhood, you see? But they go there. So how am I going to get those students back? By putting a facility right there. And that's why North Campus is there. It also says this, if I have a program and the program had 1,000 applicants and all I can take is 100, what happens to the next 900? They're going to go look for some other program somewhere else, right? But what if I could establish the program at the North Campus, because facilities is the problem, right? But if I could facilitate up there and take another hundred and put them there, I just increase by another one hundred students. And what if I had about five programs like that? Then I just increase by another one five hundred students. Right? That's not. Those are students we didn't have that we're getting. These are not students we're taking from Central and sending them up there, or these are not students from up there who would have come down here that decided to do what stayed here. These are new students. So yes, we talk about HVCC in the airport. Aviation program, that was all new students who are gonna be coming in there. We talk about that international program. Our international program right now, we have 90 teachers in Costa Rica taking our ESL program from here, in the US. 90 students, that's almost 100 FTEs for us that we didn't have. We have all the high schools that we just got signed on by the Ministry of Education that says we can now teach those kids. Those are going to be new students we just had Hungary vice president who said to us that he would like to send 100 kids to Hudson Valley. Those are gonna be new kids. But those are things that are, what, in the makings. The Prime Minister of Aruba, who I know from back in 2016, we worked together on trying to help her to keep her students in Aruba. Their students, They pay for the students. The government pays for these students to go to school and send them to the Netherlands. And when they go up there and they get their training, guess what? They never go back. So the prime minister asked of me, how can you help me keep my students in Aruba? That's what they asked. And what did I do? I gave the job to Judy to work with the prime minister on a program. The first program she wanted was a program that take kids in GED program, pull them out, give them the first two years, and send them into a medical school because they're short on medicine. And Judy was working. Our vice president worked with them on that. But those are what? All new students were going to be with us. We're working with several others, with Ghana and others Provide. We are hoping that these kids will be coming to us to spend their first year and then go back to Ghana. Short programs. We're working on an A Tech building. Right now, all of the faculty that are up in the back in the Williams building up in the back, Williams and what? Colgan. Regina, the other building? Cogan. Co- Col- Col- they were temporary buildings built by the college, temporary for the faculty to go in there. It's 70 years later and they're still working inside of it. Who care anything about them? When I came, I went up there and told us Faculty, there's no way we could grow these programs in this old building. This program will close down if we stayed in here. Now I heard from one of them who said, they thought I said their programs are gonna close down. That's just, again, what happens. I said that this program will close down if it stayed in this building. And what did I do? I went out and I begged for money from the county, and the county gave me money to design an ATEC building. And now the design is almost done for an $80 million building. How do you think that $80 million building is going to come about? Somebody has to go out and beg for the money, don't they? Yeah. Who took that job on? I did. As president, that's my role. I go out for the next year and a half to beg for $40 million because the state is going to match the rest of it. And so far, I have three million, I need, that matches six, and I have a long way to go. But you see, my job is not to sit in my office all the time and deal with other matters, it is to go out and make it happen because if I don't, the college is gonna sit right there. And those folks are gonna be working in an old building and never able to do what, grow their new programs. We open up new programs in electric and automobile uh, autonomous vehicles. We open up new programs in welding. We open up uh, redesigned programs in uh, cyber security, hacking, and cybersecurity. We're psychology. We keep it. We keep on expanding on programs that we know can be filled. We are hiring young, dynamic individuals, like Dr. Shea, for example. Brilliant in his online work. Because we know that virtual college here, this institution, is important. We need to have our own virtual college, one day. But it's a process. These things don't happen in a year, two years. They take a long time to happen. And we don't need to be doing what? slashing into them we need it takes so long it took us four years to build up to have 90 teachers inside of our Costa Rica high school it takes a long time to build things it doesn't these things and a lot of energy that few people are willing to put out and we could go on and on with more programs because there's a lot more that we're doing there's HVCC West why there is a West There's a West in discussion. Is that going to happen overnight? No, it may take us five to six years to see us, even with our first little building. And our first little building that we're gonna have is probably gonna have our EOC inside of it because the EOC was given a deadline for where they are. And then we may begin to add on nursing programs or programs that are what? But again, those are what? To increase
0: our enrollment. Yes, I can go on <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And we will hear more from Dr. Roger A. Ramsamy, president of Hudson Valley Community College. You can tune in to hear part two or go to our mediasanctuary.org website to hear it ahead of time. Thanks to roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry. Now we end the show as we do on Mondays that we are here with retired meteorologist, Hugh Johnson. Uh, do we have Hugh?
6: Yep, okay. I'm, I'm right here. With... Hugh, it's been a month. How have you been? I've been good. It's amazing how time flies when you're retired.
0: <laughs> well, and even when you're working full-time as I am, it's amazing that we've gone a month and we've uh, heard crickets from each other. So let's talk about Hurricane Ian. Before we get to the cost, take us through the timeline.
6: Well, Hurricane Ian was, as you know, it wasn't a super active uh, hurricane season, but we will have legacy with Ian. Ian formed on September 23rd, I believe, and it was a Cape Verde storm. It was a little weak, a little nemic when it started, but it, it was going into a very ideal situation with uh, warm water and, and, and just the perfect shear, and uh, as we all know, it became a monster storm. It hit, first hit Cuba as a Category 1 I end one storm and caused a lot of damage there, a lot of rain, and then it really exploded to it got into the Gulf. The Gulf had not been worked over. When you see storms and they mix up the Gulf, it makes it, it cools off, it brings upwelling and cools off the layer in the top, but there was none of that. So water temperatures were approaching 90 degrees, so it just had plenty of fuel to work with and the perfect shear. So it came in, when it came into Florida, it came in as a Cat 4, almost a Cat 5. And uh, of course, made history. And it was some issues with the with the with the cone to track of it. Miles were trying to take it west. Ultimately, turn east. I think what happened was it developed into a bigger and powerful hurricane. It produced a ridge in front of it that kind of forced it to turn more east. But again, it was it was a tough call. Uh, it spared Tampa a little bit, but of course, it clobbered uh, Fort Myers and Naples. Uh, the storm surge, all about the storm surge. Fifteen foot so- storm surge was with. That's what does most of the damage in these hurricanes. The winds are bad enough, but you have the storm and the, up to 20 inches of rain in spots. So all those three things led to devastation. So, yeah, it was a very, very expensive storm. In fact, the most expensive ever in history now, it looks like, uh, uh, beating out Irma from 2017 up to 60 to $70 million of damage to Florida alone and more to Cuba and the Carolinas. It made three landfalls, by the way. The strongest one was, of course, on the west coast of Florida, but it also hit um, Georgetown in South Carolina, which is between Myrtle Beach and Charleston. I've been there, and it hit there as a cat warning. It did cause some damage, 100, over 100 deaths in Florida, a few more wow. in the Carolinas, so very bad storm.
0: Hugh, Blaze Bryant here with Hugh Johnson on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. How come, or I should ask it this way, how difficult is it if you're looking at these models to predict a storm like in, you said that the models were tracking it west and it went the other way.
6: Yeah, not a lot. Again, you know, it, it comes down to you know the margin of error was not that great. If 50 miles with a powerful hurricane can make a big difference, uh, it, you know, you get it, we really focus on that eye wall. That's where you have your band of strongest winds and rain. And certainly wins, anyways, and uh, that that's critical. So it was off by about fifty, seventy-five miles. Uh, there was, there's still they're beating themselves up about. There's a lot of things going to be done. Um, it, I think part of the reason when they when these things explode, they sometimes create their own little little uh, current, if you will, and they can change direction a little bit. That's my opinion on it. So you know when they explode, that was anticipated to get strong. So That wasn't too much of a surprise, but maybe a little stronger than expected, and that might turn it a little bit. But it was disturbing that even the European and the other models were trying to trend it a little further west towards Tallahassee, and they ended up going east. You know, again, the other thing is, when you look at the cone, a lot of people think that if you're outside the cone in that projected forecast by the hurricane center, you're safe. You're not with a large hurricane. That does not mean you're out of the woods, so. There were people sure. that you know were saying, Well, we're out of the cone and we're gonna be fine. Well, especially on the east side, not so fine.
0: Yeah, how much of a role because climate change is both of us know gets blamed for pretty much anything weather related. How much did climate Absolutely. change have a role in this storm specifically specifically or the inactivity, the general inactivity of the hurricane season?
6: Well, I would say it has very little to do with the with the number of hurricanes because there's so many other variables involved. When they think the climate change, and again, you're right, everything is tied to climate change. But because the waters are warming, the or the atmosphere and waters are warming, that adds more fuel to the hurricane, so they can be potentially more powerful. And we have seen a lot of powerful storms lately. In the last you know, several years, you've seen a lot of Cat four and fives in the, in, in the past few seasons. Uh, I, think, I, I think Fiona came, uh, briefly became a five, or certainly was a four. So you know, we're seeing more and more powerful storms. And that's definitely, in my humble opinion, a signal of climate change, because you can add more fuel with the warm waters hitting, uh, pushing near 90 degrees to the, to the actual storm, and more rain, too, which causes sure. more flooding. And keep in mind, in Florida, the it's the second lowest state in the uh, union, uh, country, next to second to Delaware, but it has a lot more coastline. That's a problem right there because rising. Sea now you're you're talking elevation of...
0: to, to sea level, right? When you say the second right. lowest, you're talking sea level. Okay.
6: Yes. Yes. The average is on about 100 feet or less in Florida, and there's a lot of areas a lot lower than that. Uh, Santa Bell Island, for instance, the highest place on that island was only like five feet or something. So, I mean, that's why it got decimated because the title surge came up to 15 feet. So you're seeing more and more of that, and that's going to be a real problem. Insurance, it's going to be harder and more expensive Mm -hmm. to insure property in Florida. It's already, like, I think almost over 80% of insurance claims from Mother Nature uh, uh, are in Florida. It's it's a lot higher number than I thought it would be. I mean, California, you have the wildfires and other... But it's you were going to up against it here. Again.
0: Give me your 45-second right. weather forecast for the week. Sorry to cut you off.
6: Okay. No, no problem. I, I, I rambled too long. Showers tonight, and then we're, it looks like a pretty dry week. It's going to be chilly beginning of the week, but it's going to warm up, and, and we're going to have temperatures in the 60s. You might get frost by Thursday morning, Wednesday, or Thursday morning, and then it warms up. we we'll have to watch one kink in the forecast for the end of the week and early next week. It's storm to our south. It looks like it's going to stay offshore, but we got to keep an eye on it. It might sneak up and give us some rain, but that wouldn't be until early next week. Temperatures trending above normal after starting chilly.
0: Thank you very much, Hugh Johnson. We'll catch up with you next week. Be well. You got it. Uh, thank you much. Uh, this is it for this episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Blaze Bryant. Captain Caleb McPherson was our producer-engineer, keeping me on the air. Great job by him. And on behalf of both of us, we want to thank all the volunteers who contributed to this episode and made it possible. And those are Sina Bazila Hickey, Bria Barthel, Elizabeth Press, who's known as EP, and Willie Terry. And because we have the time, I'll sneak this in here. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community, and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media. Please consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you and find out. I'm sorry. We want to hear from you and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Mediasanctuary or send us an email, hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio, again, at mediasanctuary.org, where you can find full episodes and individual stories, as well as on most podcast platforms. For Kaelin McPherson, I'm Blaze Bryant. See you next time.